This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Andy Weir's 2011 sci-fi novel, The Martian. Happy 2019. It's great to be back. We took quite a bit of a break, it feels like. Yeah, a couple of weeks there. It feels like I haven't spoken to you in forever. It's weird. I know. <laughs> but we did do this great project to start 2019, um, which was fun. I didn't. I, I hadn't read this before, had you? Yes, I have read this novel before. I did it when I was at Seton Hill uh, for a class, actually. Um, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it um, when I read it then. And uh, mostly enjoyed it to the same amount this time. I think there's like a little bit of... This is the kind of novel that I think the first time experiencing it is going to be the best. And I would also argue that reading the novel without having seen the movie would be the best way to do it. Um, So I'm going to be curious how your experience was having seen the movie, because a lot of the plot is obviously spoiled when you see the movie first. Right. I have to say from from my memory of the film, which I honestly don't remember all that well as I was reading, I was kind of re-remembering. But, you know, I didn't I didn't remember the plot fully when we started it. Mm -hmm. Um but I, I like the book more, like just off the bat, I'll go ahead and say that because yeah. it captured what I think was supposed to be a book for people who love space and space travel exploration and things like that. Whereas the movie was was more of a popcorn blockbuster somewhat, but it did it did dive in for sure into the scientific elements and all of the math equations and everything that yeah. Matt Damon explains. But I just think like the book really captured like it feel it felt like a real story. It feels like a true story. Okay. I think there's a lot more to to dig into there, but before we get too deep into it, uh, we have a new look. Uh, You're sporting a a new look over there. Some new digs. (laughs) Well, I guess we both are. (laughs) Well, hopefully hopefully it's in your feed now. I mean, uh, I don't know if it will be for sure, but uh, it will be soon if it's not there already. Yeah, so we have a new logo for the Ink to Film podcast. Yeah, we worked with the artist uh, Natalie Metzger. Uh, to to make our logo and she was great went back and forth with us a ton and was willing to put up with our like little nitpicky things we kept changing <laughs> um, but we finally got to a point where we were, we were very happy with it and and we're yeah. very happy with the way it turned out and I have to say it's very much her her rendition like I think that like coming into it we were pretty open to it and she came up with something pretty different than our original logo and, and we were into basically her her design immediately yeah. Um, and then just, you know, tweaking things here and there, colors and stuff uh, was all we really had to do. Yeah. And I'm very excited about the way it turned out. And uh, so the, just a brief announcement for our patrons. Um, we want to we're going to be sending out new gear with this new logo. We're going to be sending out like a like a little grab bag of, of new stuff um, for our ten dollar patrons. And that will be sent out as soon as we get it all ordered. It'll just be a little bit of a delay while we work with the different companies to order the different things. But uh, I'm really excited to get that stuff, too, because I think it's going to look great. Um, and, and I want to put a, you know, a magnet of our new logo on my fridge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, yeah, selfishly, I love the logo. Like, I want to I want to see it, you know, in the future on a T-shirt. I want to see yeah. it. Like, I think it's a cool, cool logo that I would definitely like maybe a hat. I would wear a hat with it on there. Yeah. 
And we're not going to have any apparel right away, but I know right. that we we both would love to do that at some point. So definitely let us know if you're interested, like if you would wear a t-shirt of the logo or or that kind of stuff. Let us know because the more we hear that people are interested in that sort of thing, the more we might start looking into how to get that done. Um, yeah. But yeah, and obviously it's, it's, the more patrons, the the more possible. So tell yes. your friends and get more people on board if you can. Yeah, if you are if you're like a, a one of the lower tier patrons maybe, and you want to get in on some of this gear, uh, yeah, think about upping it. Or if you're not a patron at all, you might think about doing it. Just if you really like that logo and you want to rep it, that would be awesome. Um, and then yeah, we can take that money and use it to upgrade our failing mic stands and <laughs> the things we've been talking about. <laughs> All of our stuff that we've been doing this for like what a year and a half now, um, weekly, and uh, that's a lot of use and it's a lot of wear and tear on some of this equipment that we bought a lot of the like budget bin kind of stuff when we were starting out, and it's it's showing its age. Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, we we spent we pe- spent significant amount on the mic, and then yeah. really everything else we tried to do what we could because we didn't have Patreon or anything back then. Yeah. Well, anyway, that, I think that's enough on the Patreon stuff. Um, you know, if you don't want to be a patron, that's fine. We, you know, we just appreciate you listening. Um, but yeah, hopefully you like the new logo. I, I think it's I think it's cool and I'm excited about it. And I think it represents um, if I can get a little bit, you know, my like literary mind to it. I think there's kind of a symbolic thing going on with the transition of colors uh, yeah, to where to me it represents the transition between mediums. Um, from from book to film right and you see these two different blues transitioning into one another and i don't know i think it's cool symbolically and and we got we got the little uh, inkling on there to represent i think our listeners and and our own interest in 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 the podcast and i don't know i think there's just a lot that i love about it so hopefully you guys yeah do too. i also like that we kind of you know we stuck to our kind of original template in a yeah. way because yeah, we wanted like to. It's also like the transition towards and like the from the it kind of is very close to our old color in one corner yeah. and then into a new color. Not that we're gonna like fully embrace one color or anything like that. It's just cool yeah. to see like a transition to something new. Well, and it, it harkens back to that original logo, which will always hold a special place. You know, if you're someone who really loved the, the original logo, first off, thank you. I designed that myself, and <laughs> I, I don't think it's that great, but it definitely was good enough, and I it's going to always hold a special place in my heart as the original logo, you know, and so, like, it's got that attachment for me, um, and I'm always going to look back on that logo fondly, but... It, I'm really excited that our new one kind of can evoke that, but just do it in, in what I think is a much better way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for everybody to see it. And yeah, if you like the logo, also let Natalie know. She is uh, at Mini Totoro on Twitter and let her know that you like her design. Uh, I'm sure she'd think that was really cool. It's a sweet handle, by the way. I love Totoro, my neighbor <laughs> yeah. Totoro. You know, I've never seen my neighbor Totoro. Really, I know it's it's super wholesome. Like you got to watch it. It's just you know Miyazaki, but like very very wholesome. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've we've uh, we've circled and 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 uh, what is it? Orbited the topic here long enough. Uh, let's get into the Martian. <laughs> Do you like yeah. my you like my dad joke there? I like that. <laughs> it's very <laughs> fitting with the rest of, of the book, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, it was funny. It was a funny book. Uh, yeah. But I've, I've I felt like it would be like that because of the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know knowing knowing the, all the jokes and stuff throughout but i think let's start with how did you love space growing up were you super because i mean we grew up in an area where like space travel is really mm. really important and uh just tell me your experience with that kind of stuff yeah that's a i mean that's a good question i um absolutely i, I was always fascinated by space travel um i was always someone who i mean i grew up around the time of i mean i went to a school named after uh um uh, chris mccall chris mccall thank you 
um, and 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 in her memory. So I learned about that. I learned. I, I remember witnessing a few of the like big explosions that happened. Um, I have some memories about that, and and so it, it, being near, like, growing up on the space coast of Florida, basically, it's like you're around it. And uh, you know, my 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 parents were both you know enthusiasts when it came to space travel and what was going on, and it kind of kept me appraised of it. And then, yeah, I've always had this fascination with astronomy. And we talked about in our Jurassic Park episode that I, you know, I wanted to be a paleontologist when I was young, and I think you did too. Um, yeah. But but something to do with astronomy was always there too. And there was a time when I was in college that I seriously considered uh, switching majors to astronomy um, away That's from awesome. English, which which you know, like English has always been a big call for me, so that would have been a pretty dramatic change. Um, and ultimately, I didn't. I think because I never really had a great grasp of the like physics behind it it was more just i like the concepts right and that kind of continues to be my relationship with it today i love the concepts i don't necessarily understand how it all works but i love it (laughs) yeah that's so funny man do you ever want to be a do you ever want to be a astronaut i mean i think at some point everybody does uh but yeah for sure i mean growing up in that area my dad is super huge into everything going on with NASA. Like, you know, we, our parents knew people who were involved, like whether they worked there or engineers or whatever. Um, so it was always around and I took it for granted for a long time. But I mean, we watched like, I think I watched every launch from the time, you know, I was from the time I was a child, anytime there was a launch, everybody would drop everything, just walk outside and watch the shuttle go up. Mm-hmm. Um, up until the last one I saw, I remember watching the last shuttle go up uh, a couple of years ago now, five, six years ago. But uh, it was a huge part of my life. And then and then I went to space camp eventually, which oh, was super, did. super awesome. Yeah. I did not do that. That's cool. That always like kind of um, anytime there's like a space movie or a space story that really sticks to true science and true space travel. I think that that's what I kind of what I think of because, you know, we did like the um, I forget what it's called, but it's like the multi-axis like. Uh, training thing like you do the things that the astronauts did at space camp and you go and do like like, missions and spins you around makes you vomit kind of thing yeah but they they have like a modified one where it's like you kind of keeps your equilibrium okay pretty good for the kids i'm really bad um, at those things by the way like i get i get motion sickness so fast on a roller coaster that's one of the reasons why i I, yeah uh, not roller coasters for whatever reason i can i can do roller coasters but it's I mean, it's like I can do I could do it as long as I have a break between each one. If I have like a mm-hmm. 30 minute whenever I'm at a park and there's no lines and I can get right back on, I will get sick if I if I do it too quickly. Back to it's back. It's a double edged sword. It's like you get to have fun <laughs> faster, but you need that time to rest. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, and the big thing when I was at space camp was just that everyone, all the astronauts that came to talk to us and give speeches and, and presentations and stuff. Um everyone always talked about how like in our lifetime we're going to be on like in our lifetime yours and mine we will land on mars and and Mm. we'll start to colonize it and all that stuff so to see like this future jump to kind of where we've been able to travel there and and start to start to do testing and colonize for a certain amount of time is really cool for this book have you seen the t-shirts that say get your ass to mars i think it's like a nasa shirt no but i want i do i have been recently i've been thinking about how badly i want to just, I've been seeing people wearing like NASA jackets and shirts, t-shirts yeah. and stuff, and I'm like, God, I sh- I need some of that stuff. Like I should have been, I should have been wearing that stuff for years. Uh, that's funny. Same, same, I'm exactly the same way. And whenever I see that shirt, I'm like, damn it, I want that shirt. 
I yeah. <laughs> the, uh, cool. the another cool thing I just thought of that made me think of was my dad had a buddy who worked on a lot of the missions and he would give me the the patches for each mission. Mm. They would have like a different patch design and he would bring me like the sticker of each mission and I would just put on my window. My childhood window didn't face out to uh, the yard. It faced out to like a patio area. So I would just like put all the stickers on my window yeah. to like look at them and stuff. It was really cool. Well, you know, in our modern world, there's so few opportunities to explore and to see new things and go places where people haven't been. And space is like, you know, that's one of the few places where that can still happen. And I think that's really cool. And I think that's why this this novel, um, which feels sort of like an adventure, survival, uh, kind of like a little bit of that, like trapped on a desert island, you know, or, or you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Kind of like you got to figure out a ways to survive. It's it's that mixed with the exploration and the science. Yeah. And and I think that combines really well because I think there is overlap in that sort of like the danger of being out there on the edge away from society and 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 where you have to um, take care of yourself and you have to solve problems and no one's there to help you. I think the problem solving that goes along with being an astronaut and like these missions and the things that have gone on with Apollo and all the way up until the shuttles and and then even in you know in this book the Ares missions and stuff the the problem solving that these astronauts have and and like that is what really stuck out to me in this book because like it didn't just say like these are the problems and then they figured it out like he like you can tell that Weir was like he was he was going in and like creating these problems and then mathematically figuring out the way out of it or like figuring out like narratively how how it could actually work to in this you know future tense with with different kinds of mars landers and takeoff stuff and i I just thought it was cool that he he really was like doing the research and you can tell that he was you know fascinated with space travel in the same way uh i have i have some some of that stuff we'll get into when we when we start talking about the 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 history of the publication of this um but yeah i mean he he did definitely did his his due diligence and and studied a lot of this stuff and did research um but before we get into that i I just want to so there's something kind of just as a general theme of this novel that I love about it. And it's that I think the whole novel is really about, I mean, this is going to sound sort of trite, but I really think it is about, you know, like the human spirit and about, you know, our, our, our capacity to do incredible things. And also, you know, and that reflected in how humanity can come together um, and do incredible things. And, and I think kind of the way that that it all feeds into that overarching theme is really a strength of this novel and and did make it fun to return to like that was one of my one of the things i really enjoyed about it uh coming back to it is it's there's not a lot of novels that give me that feeling and it's not it's not in some sort of hokey way because it's it's very believable too Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the fact that the astronauts are willing to risk their lives to go back for one man and everybody's pooling their resources to get this one man off, whether no matter the country. I think it's also like supposed to sh- show this, like you're saying, the spirit that all humans have where it's like, I think we are willing to help other people. Yeah. And for whatever reason, sometimes we don't. And it's yeah. just weird. Like like when we think of that, that everybody, you know, I, I could totally see this this go- happening this way where it's everyone's pooling resources and, and everything to, to save one person. Um, and it's it's for the greater good. So so everyone is striving. Yeah. For, to well, help and, it, and, and it represent he represents Mark beco- comes to represent more than just one person's life, I think, you know, right. He sees he kind of embodies, you know, space travel and and and, you know, if he were to die, 
I think it would be such a major blow. And I think they all know that, right? Like to, yeah. to what people feel like we're capable of. And, and um, so he, he's, he's, his survival becomes symbolic, I think, for the entire world. And I love the way that he captured that. It was really cool. Yeah. And I like the idea that peace could be could be found by this exploration. You know what I mean? Whether it's yeah. like countries disagreeing, like we could all come together to to just like go towards a common goal and, and maybe spaces like, you know, it's kind of like that Star Trek future where it's like everyone has come together and, yeah. and just for the greater good and in, in order to explore and survive and and. I don't know, man. That's the. I think that's the future everybody strives for. Yeah. We'll see if we can get there. Whenever you say the greater good, I just think of Hot Fuzz. The yeah, greater good. The greater good. <laughs> yeah. Anytime anybody says it, I always go the greater good. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, so this is your first time. Now, now, maybe correct me. I might be wrong. But is this your first time reading a hard quote unquote sci-fi novel? Are you familiar with that term? And and is this your first time reading a novel like that? Uh. I mean, it, yeah, I think so. Um, hard sci-fi, just meaning it's 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 not like mumbo jumbo and hand waving. It's like yeah. saying like this is the actual science that would get it done. Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's rep. You know, usually it's like people can replicate it. Um, it's serious science in there. It's it's you know the math adds up. Um, and yeah, there's no, there's very little to no hand waving. Now there's obviously there's a whole spectrum of how quote unquote hard the science is and a lot of sci-fi. Um, but this is way on the spectrum. <laughs> you know, this mm-hmm. is very like, it reads kind of like in a really long word problem, <laughs> um, from, from a class, you know, but, but obviously more entertaining than that. Um, and that's also a credit to how this novel that he was able to do that and not have it be boring in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's what I wanted to get. Like, how did you feel? Because it, it changes the pacing, you know, it changes a lot of stuff when you're f- putting a lot of narrative time into explaining the difficulty of the ramp and the moving the rocks and, the, you know, like whatever mm-hmm. it is he's doing at the time, there's a lot of time spent on explaining the problem and then going through the process of finding a solution for it. And how engaging did you find that? Um, and was there any times where it lost you or you felt like it was, uh, dull? Um, so a couple things, the, for, for me, what it did with, was, like I said before, it kind of makes it feel like it's true. Like, like having all this Mm -hmm. true science in there and the math that all adds up makes it feel like a true story that did happen. Um, and, and you were talking about the really detailed going into the specifics. Does it make it dull for me? As long as, as long as the, plot is interesting and like I'm interested in what is going on the little minute things has never really bothered bothered me and that might come from like backgrounds in reading like like you know like really dense fantasy where like everything's described to you mm. but like I've never been a person that's get like j- details don't bog me down it's just like if I don't care about what's happening in the plot that's when I get bogged right. down right so the premise was strong enough to hold you like the Mark Watney's survival yeah yeah, so that was definitely how I felt the first time I read it. To me, that was the premise was so strong. And remember, I read this before seeing the movie because the movie wasn't mm-hmm. out yet. And um, so, I mean, I, I figured he probably survived, um, but I wasn't sure. And I um, the still the, there was enough of danger there, right? And like, how how bad was it going to be, and how was he going to find his way out of this one? Um, that was really compelling and, and, and for the most part carried me right through some of those sections that other people have found to be a bit more of a slog. Um, I, I think I touched, I, I picked up on more of it this time through. 
um, where mm-hmm. there's a few parts, and it's because I've seen the movie now, <laughs> you know, I think twice, and I've read the book, and this is my second time reading the book, and so I'm very familiar with what happens in this story. And so uh, some of those parts were a little bit like, yeah, yada, yada. I know that he figures this out. I don't really care. <laughs> um, and maybe that says something about me and why I'm not an astronaut, right? Because I, I could never get into those word problems very well. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I mean, it wasn't a huge problem and I still definitely enjoyed it. And, and part of it was also like reliving the initial thrill. Because when I first read this book, and I stress again, it was before seeing the movie, um, it was an incredibly thrilling read. I remember I went through it really fast, and I and I found it to be very compelling. Um, and it's interesting because uh, if I can, you know, be a little bit nitpicky here, it's not a particularly well written novel when it comes to like the prose. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few things that jumped out at me as being kind of sloppy or feeling like I, you know, should have been caught in editing. Um, but it's very sparse in some ways too. Um, the descriptions and uh we get very little in my opinion we get kind of little of of mark's um reflections about his situation he doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to be very reflective about things and i kind of wanted more of that um but like like i said like I, i was too caught up in it and i was too engaged with the plot and with the fun of kind of like solving these puzzles that it ultimately just didn't matter that much to me. And I was still able to really enjoy it. What did you think of the the idea to make it partially from the NASA scientist's perspective, partially from logs from Mark? Because it's like, I don't, it's like, and then partially like omniscient, right? Because it's yeah. like some of the time with the Mark, with um, the Mark stuff, it feels like he is like almost like guarding himself because he knows that these will be seen by someone at some point. Yeah, uh, the logs. So it's like it maybe that has something to do with like not having enough of the reflection. But I I do think it's it was smart to not have it just from like only the logs would have been so boring. So to like cut away to what NASA's up to and to cut away to like there's there's one moment and it's I think it's nearing the end where spoilers we're gonna get into it in a little bit. But uh, at the end when he like finds the Aries for like supplies and stuff at near the end when he mm-hmm. finally gets to it and he gets his radio contact back. It's like the, the rockets was somewhere in the valley and then he like get the astronaut gets out of his thing and he's jumping around and i thought that was really interesting because it's like i think that diversity and different kinds of point of view makes this uh less dull yeah so you're talking about pov shifts and he does he does them um a few times for definitely for sure and and i remember the first time i read it it was more striking to me because at the time i think i had read less fiction and where in which that happened. Um, and mm-hmm. then since then, I've read several other novels that do this and do it quite well. Um, it does, the first POV shift does occur fairly well into the novel, which is otherwise a first person epistolary novel where he's he's talking to you through these logs and he's saying, I, you know, as, as Mark Watney. Um, and when all of a sudden it shifts and we get this like third person omniscient, you know, zoomed in on different people back at NASA. Um, it is sort of like kind of, uh, I don't know, disorienting at first, but yeah, I think it does work. And, and I, so I wrote an essay about this when I was studying it in school and I read back through it before coming on here to record. And one of the things that, that I wrote in there that I liked was, uh, I made the comparison of, uh, Mark Watney's 
problem solving his way through each each um, new thing that 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 comes up on Mars is similar to how Andy Weir problem solves his way through this plot um, in conveying the the information he needs the reader to know in order to appreciate the story on the way that he's trying to tell it. And so he gets to a point where it's like, there's no way for me to convey what's going on with NASA through this log format. So what do I do? I change it to this. How do I, how do I convey the thing that causes the rocket to fail? Well, I'll do it by describing it from production up until this point and, and show how, you know, so he, he, he shifts his POV around, he shifts it to serve the story and, and you know maybe it feels a little bit like cheating to some people but to me it felt more like problem solving it felt more like andy just like playing andy like i know him uh playing with the form and and finding ways to make the story work for him and ultimately it worked for me the, i don't know if you have the same feeling but but it this story being so stem oriented kind yeah. of makes me mourn the loss of like an alternate timeline where i went into that industry like some sort sure. of like science or technology industry and um, but what's interesting is that from the perspective of like a writer or someone in the arts, it's like through a story like this, you can also because I, I don't you know, I don't use chemistry on a daily basis. I don't use any sort of, you know, algebra very rarely, anything like that that we learned in school I, that for some reason, sometimes I'll be like, man, I wish I could do like just some like algebra right now. I wish I could. There's something about like studying that kind of stuff and the problem solving that's nice. Cause it's like puzzles and, and, uh, it kind of makes me think about like a different timeline where I go into a different industry. But like I was yeah. saying before, it, it kind of, uh, allows for like doing a story like this allows for someone in the arts to dive into like a passion that they had in like science or technology. Or- I agree. And it, it makes me, it makes me kind of long for those days in those classes and those moments. I, you know, I can distinctly remember moments in classes where I learned some mind blowing fact about, jupiter or about the way the universe formed or about the way the vacuum of space behaves or whatever it is and just going like that's such a cool thing i can't believe that's real and just you know those moments are so cool and precious and there's there's just a limited number of them you're gonna have and um this this novel makes me yeah like look back and and kind of cherish those and and want to seek out more of them and and I, I think it really says something about the legacy of this novel because I, I, this has to have sparked, you know, we talked about with Jaws, right? Like so many people went into oceanography and stuff after just watching Jaws in a very different way because that, you know, that movie and, and, and book is not like really about that stuff. But this is, and in, in the same way, like this has to have inspired, you know, new generations of people to get into STEM and to get into you know, and and want to work at NASA or whatever it is, you know, the space agency of, of whatever country you're in um, and just be fascinated with that sort of stuff or even just, you know, an astronomer uh, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, I, it has to have had a really positive effect on, on, on that pursuit, um, which I just think is really cool. Uh, I did want to ask you, so how do you feel about Mark Watney as a character? I, I don't know. He's kind of interesting because he's clearly like this wisecracking uh, easily accessible character, but at the same time, like, uh, there's not much of an arc in him, so it's like it's more of just his survival. So I guess his survival would be his arc. But um, I don't know how I feel about him. It's an interesting question because I just read a whole book that's from his point of view, but it's really just I don't know how much I feel like I know him. It's more of just that like he survives, and I know some stuff about his background with his mother and his father. 
Yeah, I, I agree. He kind of, um, to me, he's kind of like that James Bond type character who doesn't really change. Um, mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's like his strength and his weakness too, right? Like it's, he his he's so resilient and he's he's always going to be there to, to like wisecrack and, and make a joke and and that never changes from beginning to end we see that he has that same spirit and it never really dims um mm-hmm. but because of that i think he 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 also at times um can be a little bit like it can it can feel a little bit like maybe you're not getting the true story or maybe um he's just like a little bit not relatable and that he doesn't seem to really struggle with his situation in ways that, you know, most people would, I don't know. And I'm talking about both sides of my mouth here. I know because a lot of that stuff makes him really compelling too. So, and we get a little bit of it at the edges where he'll say like, Oh, I broke down and cried about that or whatever it was, but like he doesn't linger on it. So maybe like you said, some of it is him kind of playing to the audience of the log and he doesn't really want to go into how, how he really felt. Right. Um, yeah, I think that that's what Weir would argue as well. Is kind of just that like it's not supposed to be from that perspective, that open perspective that we normally would get from a main character in a novel. Yeah, it's a different kind of book too because it doesn't focus on those things. If he if if it did focus on that, um, I'm not saying like it could be you know a really good novel. It could be even a better novel. I don't know, but it would definitely be a different novel than what we get here, right? Whereas the focus of everything here is on plot, is on action and is on problem solving like that is the core tenets of this novel and if you bring in an element of reflection on you know the state of humanity and about life on an alien planet and you get all this stuff and you get some serious sort of um existential thought in there um it would change the tone and it would change you know the pacing and there's you know there's basically risk reward with all this stuff you know something else that i just brought up in is to me is is that um i'm just trying to think of if i was writing this who would be my audience and i feel like the audience who he wants to appeal to is people who are interested in stem and i feel like those people typically and this is like broad generalizations but like your engineering types tend to not be as they tend not to wax philosophical and be interested in that kind of stuff as much as the problems and the solving of it so it's maybe it has something to do with like because i feel like i respond more to a character's journey and and like internal like turmoil and all of those things um maybe it just has to do with the audience that he was trying to appeal to yeah i I think you might be onto it um so let's get into i'm going to tell you a little bit about andy weir um and then also the publication history around this novel because i think it's very interesting so andy weir is the son of a particle physicist and an electrical engineer he has a background in computer science at age 15 he began working as a computer programmer for the Sandia National Laboratories. Uh, He studied computer science at UC San Diego, uh, but he did not graduate. He then worked as a programmer for several software companies, including AOL, Palm, Mobile Iron, and Blizzard, where he worked on the video game Warcraft II, The Tides of Darkness. (sighs) Nice. How about that? (laughs) That's awesome. He also was writing it, you know, throughout a lot of this. And his first work to gain significant attention was called The Egg, which is a short story that has actually been adapted into a number of YouTube videos, including a one-act play, and is the overarching concept of Everybody, the third album by American rapper Logic. That's awesome. Also. <laughs> How about that's, that? I did not realize that. Yeah, it's pretty that's wild. Cool, I didn't realize it until I, I was doing this research, too. That's so crazy. I got to look more into that because I actually really like that album, too. Yeah, um, I want to I want to read this short story now. Um, I'm very curious about it, so maybe we can do that for a bonus or something. Um, yeah, 
That would be so cool. We should, yeah, definitely. If you guys want us to do that, let us know. He began writing The Martian in 2009 by researching related materials so that it would be as realistic as possible and based on existing technology. He studied orbital mechanics, astronomy, and the history of human spaceflight. Um, he has said that he knows the exact date of each day in the book, and he specifically avoided physically describing characters when not necessary for the plot. So that was the specific choice, uh, maybe to leave it kind of broad as to like who could fill these roles. Um, and then, yeah, the idea that he actually knows the specific days so that he could, like he did all the math correctly based off of like where the planets would be. You know what right. I mean? It's like, it's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah, it's awesome. So having been rebuffed by literary agents when trying to get prior books published, Weir decided to put this book online in a serial format, one chapter at a time for free on his website. This is really interesting stuff. At the, and so, so, so he started releasing it serialized on his website and started garnering a following. Um, and I've heard him talk about how there were times where it would also be sort of like a community thing. Where he'd, where he'd put forth these problems and he'd see all these people trying to solve it in the comments and stuff and it, it would give him ideas and he would he could he could sometimes work off of this sort of thing right or and then he made friends with other people in the stem fields that he could reach out to and say hey you know for this next part he's going to tackle something like this how's a, you know what's some ways that he could try and tackle that so in some ways he would, I kind of felt like there were times that he had to be consulting with experts. Right. Because I was right. like, he couldn't have done all of this. Like, it's so massive of an undertaking. You would need such an understanding. It would be insane. Right. So remember, at this point, it's still free. This is free on his website. Mm -hmm. So eventually, he finished it. And it was very popular with, it, with his followers on his website. They requested that he would make a Kindle version of it so that they could have it all together on their devices, right? Like, people just wanted the ease of that. They wanted mm -hmm. it on the Kindle. Well, to be on Kindle, you have to set a minimum price of 99 cents. You can't have it for free on there, um, or at least at the time. Uh, so he set it for 99 cents. Um, it went on to sell 35,000 copies in three months on Kindle, which was greater than the number of people who had previously downloaded it for free. Um, now, this was a big enough sales to garner the attention of publishers, and Podium Publishing, which is an audiobook publisher, uh, signed the audiobook rights in January 2013. And then he, Weir went on to sell the, the print rights to Crown Publishing in 2013 as well for over $100,000. So uh, he, I believe he was also approached by a literary agent in there when it was, having its, when it was taking off. Um, so first off, Crown Publishing, you may remember, is the uh, publishing company we worked with uh, mm -hmm. for Ready Player One. We did that giveaway. Um, mm -hmm. So same publisher as Ernest Klein. So I have a question just in terms of that industry stuff. Uh, yeah. He got 100000 for the book, for the print rights, because print it was rights. already kind of published at that point, potentially. Um, you mean like... It had already been released in some way, so it wasn't like a full like like release from the get-go? Well, I mean, $100,000 is actually pretty good advance, too. Um, now, it's not like what we heard about with Ready Player One, but yes, right. I, I, I definitely think there was partly some of that was in the um, the idea that there was these versions already out there. Um, part of the audience had already bought the novel, so you're doing calculations on like how many new copies are we actually going to sell. Mm -hmm. um, so that's all that stuff goes into the negotiations for that, I imagine. Um, but to me, it also still seems, I mean, like it's still low compared to where this novel would go on to, to sell. Um, I'm sure he sold out his, his royalties pretty quickly. So when it did come out on in, in uh, hardcover, 
it debuted uh, at number 12. And it remained on the New York Times bestseller list for four weeks without getting above the 11th position. Now, when the trade paperback edition came out, it was on top of the New York Times bestseller category for a total of 19 out of 76 weeks that it was listed. So 19 weeks weeks at number one. So the trade paperback version of this novel, which is the one I have, is actually was actually like what sold like crazy. So that's interesting, right? Because like part of that is also the movie being announced, I believe, because around this around these times, they also sold the movie rights, and it was announced that Matt uh, Matt Damon was going to star, and so it kind of became a hot thing. Um, but also, I wonder if there's something about like the price point of a trade paperback for this kind of novel, maybe appealing to people more and not necessarily feeling like you need to get that hardcover. Yeah, that is interesting. I feel like there's a lot we could dig into with that, but because it's yeah. like, is it is it also going back to what, because for some reason I'm stuck on this, this, this idea that a, a lot, I know a lot of people broadly, it appealed to a lot of people broadly, but I feel like STEM people really responded to it. So maybe it has something right. to do with being like, I want to buy the paperback version because it's more, I don't know, financially reasonable or whatever it is, but I don't know. I'm just all speculation. Well, and I mean, it seems like this novel does have a pretty broad appeal and, and um, that is unusual for this sort of novel. Um, Mm -hmm. This had a, this had a more broad appeal and I think probably partly because of the movie adaptation. Um, But I remember around the time I was reading it, like the movie was announced when I was reading it. Um, And I think there was a lot of buzz surrounding the novel around that time because of that and a lot right. of people were saying like if you have any interest in hard sci-fi like you've got to read this novel this is mm-hmm. like hard sci-fi done right it's the best hard sci- novel, sci-fi novel i've read in years all this stuff right um and so that was interesting to me because i'd never really gotten into hard sci-fi before this novel um that was my that was my first real experience with it too and so i wanted to try it i, mm-hmm. I did want to ask you what what's another good example of like a hard sci-fi novel Hmm. Now, like I said, I haven't really read a lot of it, but yeah. I'm, an, I'm pretty sure Arthur C. Clarke is known for doing that. Um, maybe Heinlein, but I'm not. I'm less certain of that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these like classic sci-fi novels, um, I think, were considered hard sci-fi. I mean, honestly, I'm a little bit out of my depth here as far as like really listing. Um, I know a lot of stuff that's published in like Amazing Stories or Analog Magazine. A lot of those will tend to be hard sci-fi short stories, mm-hmm. um, you know. So yeah, if you're into that sort of thing, let us know. I, I think I think that's yeah, that's in a very you know minor way. That's that's what I know about it. <laughs> yeah, I would, yeah, because I just wondered if I'd ever read anything anything. I don't I I don't think that I could say that I'd ever read anything like that before. But yeah. it's I'd be interested too. Yeah, and we may cover some more of it because there is a few other of these kind of stories that have been adapted. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting to think about this self-publishing for free path because this is one of those things where I think there's there needs to be a huge amount of caution when you hear this because a lot of people will falsely hear this and think, oh, well, why can't I do that? And like, not I, I say falsely, I'm not saying it's impossible, but this is the outlier. So many people put decide they're going to put their book on their website for free because they're not having any luck with publishers. They're not having any luck finding an agent. And they say, well, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there and, it, you know, I'll, I'll ride the groundswell to success. And they put it out to crickets. 
And, you know, uh, Weir has said he, he had kind of built a following um, from his, I think, partly from his time with his um, doing Blizzard stuff. But then also he had been putting out short fiction. He had, was working on a web comic I read. So he had built a bit of a following. Mm-hmm. And so that he has said, like, that definitely helped him. And then um, you also like kind of have to catch lightning in a bottle, you know, and with your subject matter. And, and he did. Um, but it's a very hard thing to do. And um, it can be very risky, and and I know that you have to you have to sell like he did, like thirty five thousand copies of your Kindle version. You have to get a pretty good number to garner interest from literary agents and garner in- interest from traditional publishing, if that's your goal. And then, um, but you know, one of the things that that can do is that can lead to things like movie deals, um, and it can you know raise your profile. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you hear about this sort of thing happening sometimes, but this is also very rare. So, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to know that, and there's always, everybody has a different path to success. Um, you know, if you, if you're lucky enough to make it and, and his path is, is definitely a unique one. I think that it's interesting to think about because it's kind of similar to something like trying to make an indie film. It's like you, you get all, all these people together, you cut costs wherever you can, and you try to make the best film that you can. And then, you, you know, you try to shop it around. You try to take it to different film festivals, see if anybody brings it in. And then you hear the success story of people who made, you know, some movie for, for $50,000. And then it goes on to get a theatrical release and it's bought by a huge... Blair Witch Project, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like these things do happen, but it's like you can't bank on that ever right. is what, what's interesting. It's like, it's like you can sometimes go against the traditional... I guess form of of releasing something or getting something done but it's just it's just like you have to do it for the passion of it rather than necessarily thinking like I'm going to be the next, you know, Andy Ware. Yeah. Well, and I should say there are a lot of people who are making a killing self-publishing. Uh self-publishing and, and avoiding traditional publishing and, and and they don't have literary agents and they do everything themselves. And there are people who make a lot of money doing that. Absolutely. And maybe some of those even go on to to have movie deals um and and stuff like that if that's a goal for you um so i'm not trying to i'm not trying to like shit on that sort of thing um but i am also just saying that um releasing stuff for free to me raises red flags um especially when it was the entire novel not just like a teaser not just like a taste it was his entire novel and it's just risky you know i'm not saying you can never do it um and it depends on genre i know like romance does really well with with self-publishing so it just depends um it's, it's worth thinking about seriously and doing research before you make any decisions like that. But um, yeah, so one other thing I want to mention before we get into the plot is that uh, I think we talked about this a little bit on one of our bonus episodes, but uh, Weir wrote a short story um, called Lacero that was published in 2016 edition of Ready Player One, making it canonical in the book's fictional universe. Um, it is a prequel to the events of the novel, um, that he wrote as just fan, really just fan fiction for the Ready Player One universe because he liked it so much, and uh, Ernest Klein ended up saying like, yeah, no, this is canon, and I believe it's about um, Sorrento. It's about Sorrento, and 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 oh, yeah, I don't know I, what no. I haven't read it, but now that you say that, yeah, I remember reading something about that or hearing something about that. I think yeah. I mentioned it to you. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's another one that I think would be really interesting to maybe cover on a bonus episode or something because I, I would love yeah. to read it. And, and I love that Klein read it, liked it so much that he said, yeah, this is canon now. <laughs> that's so awesome. That's cool. Um, and apparently the two the two guys are friends. Um, I don't know where their friendship began, um, but yeah, our friends now at least. Cool. Maybe Crown Publishing. They were published around the same time, right? Yeah, like- share publishers. Definitely. Definitely possible. 
Um, but yeah, I think I think let's get into plot if you're ready, man. Um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna chunk this up into three chunks. Um, this book has a lot of plot, but it's also a lot of just like this happens, this happens, this happens. So um, I think I think I can do big chunks here, and we can just kind of have general reactions to those sections. Sounds cool. So in 2035, the crew of NASA's Ares 3 mission have arrived at Acidalia Planitia for a planned month-long stay on Mars. After only six souls, an intense dust and windstorm threatens to topple their Mars Ascent Vehicle, or MAV, trapping them on the planet. During the hurried evacuation, an, an antenna tears loose and impales astronaut Mark Watney, a botanist and engineer, also disabling his spacesuit radio. He is flung out of sight by the wind and presumed dead. As the MAV teeters dangerously, Mission Commander Melissa Lewis has no choice but to take off without searching for Watney. However, Watney is not dead. His injury proves relatively minor, but with no long-range radio, he cannot communicate with anyone. He must rely on his own resourcefulness to survive. He begins a log of his experiences. With food a critical, though not immediate, problem, he begins growing potatoes in the crew's Martian habitat, the HAB, and burns hydrazine to generate water for the plants. Okay, that's chunk one. So we get the setup here, right? And and, and it's interesting because it talks about the crew and everything, but like truly the novel begins with him saying I'm fucked <laughs> and, and, right. and like talking about what happened and we're just very close to his perspective and we don't really get a lot of this crew stuff until a little later. I think one of my favorite parts of this is just that he's this like madman botanist yeah. and he he like I just like I, we talked about it before the problem solving that goes on and just thinking about like I know that they go through like intense training and they're like they have master's degree in multiple multiple fields and all of this stuff but I would be so fucked dude like yeah <laughs> I'm not gonna figure out how to put get Martian sand and put, well, put and, water and in there's it that- and there's that um there's that like thrill that you got out of watching like MacGyver as a kid or I got I should right. say I don't know if you did um now Very little, like yeah. a lot of the MacGyver stuff I think was like bullshit I don't know how much of it actually held up but there was always something cool about seeing him come up with some smart clever way to like d- defeat something or you know to 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 beat a problem or to you know solve a problem and there's a, there's a bit of that feeling with Mark like how is he gonna solve this one so there is one major scientific inaccuracy in this novel and Weir has you know said it himself and owned it he says that he he knowingly included it in order to move the plot like it it was necessary for the story to take place Mm -hmm. do you have any idea what it might be i feel like when the movie came out i i feel like i heard it but i don't i can't remember it right now can't remember it okay so it is the dust storm itself um not that there aren't dust storms on mars let me see if let me see if I can from from what I remember if this if this is even it is just that the atmosphere is so that even if even if a storm was raging at 150 miles an hour or whatever on Mars it would still just be like very it would be like a light breeze or something right it's because the atmosphere if you think about it the atmosphere on Mars is very thin we know this right, right? because we the reason that it's so dangerous and how like all of the gas will vent immediately and it's mm-hmm. it's it's not a vacuum but it's very thin out, out there right right and so because of that, a storm pushing wind isn't going to have a lot of oomph behind it, you know? Right. And so because of that, even though there are dust clouds, there's not going to be an antenna flying through the air and impaling somebody. There's not going to be like that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and it's not going to be blowing over like their landers and stuff, right? 
Um, so, and, and Weir has said, uh, I mean, I may could be, I could be wrong about some of the small technical stuff here. Um, but in general, I think that's basically what it is. And Weir has said that he knowingly broke that and, and kind of made up the situation to, to set up this inciting incident. Now, some people who are really into science, um, get really upset about this. Right. And they, they're like, oh, this is bullshit. You know, this would never happen. I'm fine with it. Ultimately, I, I don't care. <laughs> but, no, I, I don't, but like, I, I kind of get it. And then like he also like later uses this rightfully so to say that um, he's going to be able to escape with his, you know, uh, canvas covered um, rocket. And the only reason mm-hmm. that's possible is because the atmosphere is so thin. Right. And if the atmosphere is that thin then you can't have storms like that. So I think like if you're like really into this sort of stuff, like you, it bothers you that you can't have it yeah. both ways kind of thing. Well, I, now I do mind it a little more now that you say that because <laughs> it's like, you can't exactly, you can't have it be a thin atmosphere and also not be a thin atmosphere. Yeah. Well, and, and he, it basically, that's just how he does it. So, I mean, ultimately yeah. I'm fine with it, but like, yeah, it's interesting that I, I thought about it more throughout this time. Cause I didn't even know that until after I had finished reading it, mm-hmm. um, when I was doing research. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, it's cool setup, classic setup, and, and we get we get a lot of. I I think Mark Watney, the strength of his character is he's funny and he's immediately engaging, and I I you know I kind of you kind of love the the attitude he has about the whole situation and how he's mm-hmm. cracking jokes about it and how you know you just want this guy to to survive and you want to follow him in his journey. So um, I felt immediately grabbed by this novel when I picked it up. Something to do with like the way that he approaches like the references to the 70s music and the movies and the TV shows. Also, I've always really liked I felt like that was like endearing to me for his character. Yeah. So how come Aquaman can control whales? They're mammals. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, that was really funny. Yeah, I think it's I mean, like that's an example of his his thinking. Right. Like and I think that comes at a really funny like m- comic moment of, um, you know, uh, the guys at Benassa wondering, like, what is he thinking right now? And then I think that's like what we get. Yeah. They do something. They do that a couple of times where, yeah, he'll say something and then cut to, which is fun. It's fun to do in movies. It's fun to do in books. It's cool. Yeah. Let me just give you give you the second chunk here. We can keep moving through this. NASA eventually discovers that Watney is still alive when the satellite images of his landing site show evidence of his activities. They begin devising ways to rescue him, but withhold the news of his survival from the rest of Ares Three crew on their way back to Earth aboard the Hermes sp- spacecraft, so as not to distract them. Which I remember, but that was like a big moment in the book. Like it was a very like, oh my god, I can't believe you're not going to tell them, you know, all this stuff. So mm-hmm. I think it was cool because it creates a really nice tension, right? So Watney plans to drive to Schiaparelli Crater, where the next mission, Ares Four, will land in four years, and their MAV is planned is is already prepositioned. He modifies a rover and makes a test drive to recover the unmanned Pathfinder lander and the Sojourner rover, and brings them back to the Hab, enabling him to contact NASA. Mitch Henderson, the Ares 3 flight director, convinces NASA Administrator Terry Sander- Teddy Sanders to allow him to inform the Ares 3 crew of Watney's, Watney's survival. They are thrilled, except for Lewis, who is guilt-stricken at leaving him behind. The canvas at one of the Hab airlocks tears due to Watney's repeated use of the airlock, decompressing the Hab and nearly killing him. He repairs the Hab, but his plants are dead, threatening him again with eventual starvation. Setting aside safety protocols due to time constraints, NASA hastily prepares an unmanned probe to send Watney supplies, but the rocket disintegrates after liftoff. A deal with the China National Space Administration provides a ready booster to try again. 
With no time to build a probe with a soft landing system, NASA is faced with the prospect of building a capsule whose cargo can survive crashing into the Martian surface. However, astrodynamicist Rich Purnell devises a slingshot trajectory around Earth for a gravity assist that could get the Hermes back to Mars on a much extended mission to save Watney, using the Chinese rocket booster to send a simpler resupply probe to Hermes as it passes Earth. Sanders vetoes the Rich Purnell maneuver as it would entail risking the other crew members, but Henderson secretly emails the details to Hermes. All five of Watney's crewmates approve the plan. Once they begin the maneuver and disable NASA's remote overrides, NASA has no choice but to support them. Firstly, the the I you know I love that he he went into all the detail of finding out technology that was around, but the big moment for me is when he goes and gets Pathfinder, yeah. and like I love that because it's like existing missions. And like broken down rovers are playing a part in the rescue of this fictional character, and I just I think that's so cool. It's basically really like cool. the coolest little like reference bomb you could you could drop to like Mars missions and stuff. I yeah. love that part. The explosive decompression of mm -hmm. him going out the airlock to me is one of the was like one of the coolest moments. Um, and how and how it just like it it the way he, he describes the canvas like weakening over time, and then all of a sudden just out of nowhere it explodes and cracks his like mask and. He wakes up and he's like venting and just like, I don't know, to me that was so cinematic that when I remember reading it and going like, oh, I can't wait to see this in the movie because this is going to be mm -hmm. really fucking cool. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, it was. But, uh, <laughs> the uh, Yeah, I really like that scene too. And then the idea that he's like, oh, I'm good to go. I'll wait till Ares 4. And then boom, in, a, in an instant, like everything's changed and he's at yeah. risk of dying. He loses again. all like so much of his crop. Yeah. Like it's, it's really bad. Yeah. I'm, I was just thinking like, logistically how much of weir's research went into all of these other ways that nasa was going to try to save him just to have the slingshot method be the way you know what i mean like the the fault the launch where it fails and everything and like how much time was dedicated to all of this stuff that ended up not being plot relevant kind of it it, it was for the nasa scientists to realize yeah. that they needed help from the, for the from the chinese space program but uh it was just funny to me that there was a significant portion of the book that he did a ton of research towards like different ways they could have tried to get him off and they like ways that he was they weren't going to be able to get him off um and then the f the launch failing was just like such a moment of of course we're like as the readers were like oh that was so awful but to me i was like damn from his perspective like he just like burned through a like multitude of chapters like trying to describe all these ways that they were going to try to save him and they rushed yeah. it i did think it was cool that they were willing to to forego um, you know, safety protocols in order to like force this launch. And then ultimately we see how that turns out. And I think that's a good lesson in terms of just checking safety stuff. But it's funny that like it doesn't really end up having much plot relevance to saving Mark. So that that takes us to the crew. Now, I think to answer your question, honestly, I think that we'd have to ask <laughs> Weir himself. I don't know if he has answered that or not. Like how much how much of the research went into each thing? I don't know. And where did the idea for the orbital mechanics and the the slingshot method, like how early on did he think of that as the final solution? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so. Cuz it's like if he always knew that, then it's like that's a lot of extra research that he did in order to to kind of give us this red herring. Yeah, but it's also like you have it has to be the final thing. It has to be the 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 last ditch effort for it to have that narrative punch. So, yeah, that's um, true. who knows, honestly. Um, but yeah, definitely interesting. So, so a lot of this NASA stuff also brings up one writing thing I wanted to talk about before we we move past it. Um, I think for new writers, um, especially if you listen to the audiobook, this really stood out to me. 
um, which I did listen to the audiobook this time. I, I own a hard copy that I read the first time and then, um, but I listened to the audiobook this time and, and, um, the dialogue tags, um, this is like such a like small thing, but it really stood out in the audiobook. Um, he, he used, he, he was like varying his dialogue tags to where it would be like, he agreed, he pondered, he, or she, you know, uh, theorized. And, and so like, instead of saying sh- said, um, he would use like, uh, what like colorful tags instead to try and mm-hmm. vary it up, which is something that, um, I remember being taught when I was in elementary school. And then I had to unlearn when I got to, um, got to like the university of Florida and I started studying writing at the collegiate level. And every professor I had was like, why do students do this? Stop doing it. Um, because said is fairly invisible and, um, will go by without you even noticing it. Whereas every time someone, you know, uh, ponders or theorizes or offers up like every, that, that draws so much attention to it. And, um, there's these long stretches of dialogue, especially when they're on, when they're at NASA or when they're on the, the spaceship where multiple characters are talking to each other and it's just full of these tags. And to me, it was so obvious. It was like bogging everything down and it felt so weird. And I was like, Oh man, I really wish this wasn't like this. Did you even notice anything like this? Or is this just purely a writer thing? No, I didn't notice. This is funny. So this is like, yeah. um, I was talking to my wife about this and, um, she's like, I feel like I, I sometimes I feel like I'm Neo. I don't remember if she said it just like this. And like I can see the Matrix now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because of like talking to me about writing. And she says like when she's reading books, she notices things like this that she would have never noticed before. Um, and it's so right. true. It's like you can see the code now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as a writer, like I can't not notice it. And it's mm-hmm. and it stands out to me. And I'm like, oh, this is so this is so awkward and bad. But I, I laugh at myself because I know I'm like I bet most people don't even know this. This is going on. No, um, I didn't even notice. But yeah, that's, that's the funny, funny thing is like once you we've talked about this before, like once you get to be not even an expert, but once you get to know something to a significant level, like when I watch a film, there's so much of the skeleton of the film that I'm like, I pick apart immediately. And I'm like, OK, I know where this is going. I know what they're trying to what they're trying to make the audience feel just by lighting or just by like, yeah. like how they stage a character or something like. I bet what, in film uh, a comparison you could probably make is some sort of like heavily overused like shot or something. Where like if, if you saw a film and it was like obvious that they were leaning really heavily on this like kind of gimmicky shot or something and you were like, man, this is getting frustrating. Whereas like some people would probably watch it and never notice. Right. Um, but like if someone who maybe thinks about that sort of thing, it might stand out to you. I don't know. I feel like that would probably be a, like a comparison you could probably make um, to where just knowledge of the art form is going to is kind of almost going to get in your way a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty funny because you can't turn it off too. And like people will be like, why can't yep. you just in-? like I'll say like if I if I don't like something, sometimes I'll be passionate about it. And then people will be like, why can't you just enjoy it? And I'm like, I, I, I try to like, trust me, yeah. I try to. <laughs> Oh, I, I love the. Um, I should say I love the the decision by the crew to 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 go full on mutiny, um, and you combine that with Mark talk, talking about being a space pirate later and stuff like that's so fun. And it also leads into this whole like uh, like I said like desert island, you know, like off on a ship on the seven seas kind of story too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, and the idea of the mutiny against NASA I thought was really fun. Uh, I just remember loving that moment. Yeah, it's so cool. I I the. The type of person that it takes to be an astronaut, I think, is really, I think he where like nailed it down because it's like I think that they are so like they're so honorable, like they're like yeah. willing to do all of these the, like crazy things. They're geniuses. They realize what's at stake, but at the end of the day, like most of them, 
uh, as far as I know, are really like willing, you know, it's like this crazy brotherhood where it's like, we're not leaving anyone behind and like yeah. they'll, they'll all sacrifice themselves to go save him. And uh, yeah. I thought that was cool. There's also really interesting that just reminds me of this, like, this undercurrent thematic thing about like utilitarian thinking. Um, what's the op- in- the inverse of that? Is it egalitarian? No, I don't know. But basically, without the fancy terms, it's do you uh, do you rationalize? Do you do you weigh the you know the, you know six lives versus one life, that sort of thinking, or do you do the more like this one life is important for X, Y, and Z reasons, and I'm willing to risk six other lives in order to you know what I mean? Right. No, it's like it's like kill like like yeah, save the save the individual to but but kill the millions or save the millions and kill the individual. Yeah, or yeah, or or, or yeah, or even just it's like it's the um the trolley problem. It's Spock, right? Spock yeah. does this too, where it's like Sure. Yeah, yeah. He's he's that very rational, like why would you why would you do this? And and the trolley problem is all about this, right? Like do you pull the do you pull the lever to kill the like five workers to save to to spare the one's life, or do you kill the one worker to save the five's life you know what i mean or you know what i mean right. or through an action and there's all that there are different variations of the trolley problem which are really fascinating um and there's a lot of these discussions going on in this novel and um yeah the it seems to go more on the the idea of like you know the the the, uh, the purely rational is not the way to go this seems to be where this this novel lands um and we see it work out but it's also one of those things where it's like, uh, if all of the entire Hermes crew dies and Watney dies as well, then will you look back and go, yeah, that was a great decision. Totally should have made it. <laughs> you know, it could have just been one death and instead it's seven or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, I saw First Man and movies, movies like, and I'm thinking just in terms of storytelling, but uh, like a story like this, like The Martian, where where it's very much like, these things couldn't happen. Like if you if it's, if you're dealing with NASA and space and all of these like just the just it, it would just be so many astronomical impossibilities in a row to get this guy home. Uh, and you're like you, like if it happened in real life, it probably wouldn't. But then you look at things like the Apollo missions and you look at things like that we've actually done, and you're like yeah. people could figure it out. Like people, we could get it done. It's- Apollo thirteen. You can't. I I couldn't read this novel without thinking about Apollo thirteen. Right, and I really want to go watch that movie again. Yeah, um, I remember when the, when this book was first t- like described to me. Somebody said, um, "You like that scene in Apollo thirteen where they upturn the box full of all the different parts and say this? You, know, gotta, you have to make this yeah. this filter fit in this slot, and this is what parts we have." Right. Like if you like that scene, that's what the entire book is. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great description of it. Honestly, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking of Apollo Apollo thirteen. Like a lot of that stuff, it's just like, and that's why I was talking about like the the perseverance or like the just the will to to so, pro, solve these problems that the astronauts show is just unbelievable. Really cool. All right, so let's get the final section of plot here. Watney resumes modifying the rover because the new rescue plan requires him to lift off from Mars in the Ares four MAV. While working on the rover, Watney accidentally shorts out the electronics of Pathfinder, losing his ability to communicate with Earth. After Watney leaves for Schiaparelli, NASA discovers that a dust storm is approaching his path, but has no way to warn him. While crossing Arabia Terra, Watney becomes aware of the darkening sky and improvises a rough measurement of the storm's shape and direction of movement, enabling him around it to, to go around it. Surviving a rover rollover on his descent to Schiaparelli, Watney reaches the MAV and reestablishes contact with NASA. 
He receives instructions on the radical modifications necessary to reduce the MAV's weight to enable it to intercept Hermes on its flyby. The modifications include taking off the front of the MAV, which Watney has to cover with the HAB canvas. After takeoff, the canvas tears, creating an extra drag and leaving the MAV too low for the rendezvous. Lewis hastily improvises a, pr improvises a plan to intercept the MAV by firing Hermes attitude thrusters and then blowing a hole in the front airlock with an improvised sugar and liquid oxygen bomb using the thrust from the escaping air to reduce speed. Beck, the Hermes EVA specialist, uses a manned maneuvering unit on a tether to reach Watney and bring him back to Hermes. In the final log entry, Watney expresses his joy at being rescued, reflecting on the human instinct to help those in need. There we go. So the big exciting finale here, um, which I was found super thrilling the first time I read it, and it's still thrilling <laughs> in subsequent reads. Um, and I love that things go wrong, yet it still works. You know what I mean? Like things don't just go off without a hitch. Like it's a really clever way of like having enough stuff go wrong, but still be able to work. And they're making, they're making last minute cha choices and decisions right up to the last second. Right. Yeah. So that, that ending is also a little different than I remember from the book, from the movie, which mm -hmm. will be interesting to talk about when we get there. Um, Cause like he mentioned the puncturing his hand to, in order to fly and stuff. And then that didn't end Iron up. Man. Yeah, like Iron Man. It didn't end up... And I honestly like kind of dinged the movie for that line. And that felt super cheesy to me in the movie when he said that. And then I was like, oh, it's part of the book. So I'm an asshole for thinking that. <laughs> it was the movie's fault. But yeah, so it just it was a little different than I was expecting, which was nice. It was, it was more on the crew. Now, I don't remember whether they do the explosion or not in the ship in the movie. And you don't have to tell me. I feel like that was really cool. Like the idea to like at the last second be like, you have to make a bomb in like 10 minutes and we have to blow it up and hope that everything goes well with and we're able to s somehow. It's just the calculations involved in doing that kind of stuff uh, is crazy. And that's like brings me back to what I was talking about with First Man and, and even Apollo 13 where like all the calculations that you have to do, all the math and trajectories and things like that that you have to do in space. Uh, in a crunch like a small amount of time would just be that that's where I would fail to be an astronaut because it, I like that kind of stuff and and like science mostly but math would never came very very easily to me so it would at least if I could figure it out it would take me a while yeah so there are a lot of changes um you know, you can argue about how significant they are, but um, at the end here, but I, I think, yeah, I think we should save them for the movie episode because I think that's going to be one of the fascinating things to really dig into is talking about where they where they shifted stuff. But I think it's interesting to think about just as like a precursor for next week um, as a filmmaker tackling this novel. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a constant discussion about what to include because <laughs> there's so many little things and like how much of the problem, how much of the, how much of the math, how much of the setup can we convey um, and how to do it in a way that's going to please your STEM audience, like you said, versus general audiences who maybe care a little bit less about that sort of thing. Yeah. And I mean, it's Ridley Scott who's like a, you know, I mean, he ultimately he's a sci-fi god like yeah. he's he created like some of the best sci-fi oh, i just thought ever. of um uh at, at the end of the novel watney says uh he makes he has a line about how it's true that in, in in space nobody can hear you scream which is the famous tagline from alien i believe right like the marketing mm -hmm. for alien yeah which was ridley scott who went on to make his movie <laughs> how about that i'm yeah. sure he and wrote it, was it marketing. He i don't think that had any idea i don't think that that 
Yeah, I don't think that line had was ever in the movie in Alien or anything like that. It's but just like in the, the marketing, marketing team, yeah, came up with that, and then and then yeah, it's cool how it like kind of came full circle. Uh, I just have a couple of things here before as we draw this to a close. Um, so this is this is kind of we talked about at the beginning how we felt about you know exploration and space and um, with our current trajectory and everything that's going on. I know like right now is a little different than it was a few years ago, but like. What are your thoughts on like us going to Mars? Will we be there soon? Like, um, do you think that, and like, what kind of value does it hold for you? Immense value. Um, I think we have proven time and again that the the breakthroughs in science that will be made when people strive for things um, are invaluable. You just look at the space mission, or the the moon missions, and everything that like the leaps and bounds that we made in technology that it's not just space travel technology, but technology that, that, you know, microwaves and, and, and all sorts of things that, that, that can, you know, taste, uh, track their lineage back to the moon missions. Um, it's incredible. And I think that, uh, something similar would happen with Mars. And I think, I, I absolutely believe we're going to do that. Um, I certainly in our lifetimes, hopefully sooner rather than later, but mm-hmm. I think I think we will see that. I think we will, you know, barring catastrophic uh, world ex- implosions or or personal <laughs> tragedy, um, I think we should we should see that in our lifetimes. I, I really hope that that is true. Um, I think that there is a certain capacity for just like human foibles and asshattery and political bullshit to keep this from happening. Um, but I am enough of an optimist in, in some respects. And when it comes to this sort of thing, I like to remain optimistic that it will happen. Uh, and I agree with you. I, I think for me, it's like I have to I have to hold on to this. Like I have to know that we're going to push for these things because like you said, it's not just it's not just space. It's the advancement. It's the survival of the human race beyond the Earth's health and everything that's going on here and and just yeah, pushing out and surviving and um seeing i mean just thinking of how important the the moon landing was in to the 60s and thinking about how important a, a mars landing and and potential colonization would be for for our lifetime would just be like it would be the biggest thing to ever happen and i feel like it would push a lot of people towards you know technological advances and and getting into that field and i think it would i think it's it's definitely going to happen um it's just yeah. is it going to be sooner or later People always say like, oh, but it costs so much money, right? Like it's just, it's so expensive, and, and is it worth it? We need to focus on the here and now, and and not on the you know the the, the heavens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can think of uh, five billion dollars uh, right now that uh, would be much better spent on NASA and space exploration than some dumb fuck wall. <laughs> Um, that so many of those pe- same people want to spend it on. It isn't going to do shit anyway, and it's just a vanity project. Well, it's like but the anyway. people who I hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, yes, of course. But the yeah. thing, the people that I hear talk. Well, let's not get too political here. But the people that I hear talking about. Yeah, we do it all the, the time. Here man, and now. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Say what? I said we do it all the time. So I yeah. mean, it's kind of part of it. Um. You know, the people who are saying let's spend it on the here and now are the same people to be like, no, I'm not going to I'm going to do everything I can to not pay my taxes. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I'm well off, but not not helping others. And yeah, I think that 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 ultimately shows like, yeah, we could be spending this if we were spending the space program money on anything else, it would be, you know, helping homeless people and providing like, you know, providing universal health care. 
universal health care, like education, Free like all college, these things yeah. that it's like it's like uh, yeah, all of those things would be would be fantastic. Um, yeah. But I think spending it on the space program is a is a noble pursuit as well. Absolutely, and 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 I reiterate again the pragmatist in you. If, if you're if you're arguing, um, there is huge advancements in technology that affect our everyday lives that would come from this sort of thing and have come from this sort of thing in the past. So it's not it's not purely um, a pursuit of 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 you know like exploration um, exploration and just for like the fun of it or for the for the for the discovery of it. It's it's also got on the ground implications in everyday life that that truly could be incredible and yeah. uh yeah I, I don't know and it's also just like the human race is comp is in my opinion capable of some pretty incredible things and why would you not want to see that why would you not want that to happen um i, I i'm sometimes jealous of the pre- of previous generations that got to see the moon landing got to live through the moon landing you know yeah. and that was before our time and how incredible that must have been and I want something like that. I want to live through the Mars landing, you know, and and to, and yeah. to have that be well, something that I saw. The push, the push by the people in that time, like they they went from, you know, putting a man in space to to landing on the moon in like seven years or something. Yeah. And so it's like the that kind of push by everyone involved and the government and like that's like the kind of push I want to see to to go to Mars. And you were talking about like the like yes, it it'll have like for me for me what it is is like the 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 technologies that come from it are absolutely important. But to me, that's secondary to like the legacy that we leave and like and like what it would mean to to and that's just my personal like where I land sure. on it. And it's just like the the like that's the that's the future of the of the human race. Like it's like you have to. You have to think about the future and not just like, how is this going to help me? I agree, man. Um, so I think that's a good place to leave this book. I think we want to leave a little bit of space for, for our discussion next week. There's a lot that went into um, adapting this to a movie and decisions that were made that I'd like to react to. Some of them I agree with, some of them I don't. Um, I'm really fascinated to learn about Ridley Scott and how he found out about this and and you know what how he felt about it um i'm sure you'll find that in your research on the director so i'm excited for that man and uh yeah i'm looking forward to it so stick around to the end because i have a i have a question that i wanted to ask you luke and i feel like this is one that people are going to want to hear okay what is it i'll start thinking if you could choose one food to have to eat that you have that has to be a plant of some kind what are you gonna choose what do you, what's your potato what's your plant that you're gonna you're gonna eat every day okay and i'll save my answer for the end yeah, definitely. Uh, if you wanted to find us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And you can join our Council of Inklings, which is the best way to connect with the community and kind of get like some extra little tidbits from us. Well, also, we, we post polls on there about future projects and stuff like that. And that's a, so that's a great way to affect the show and to vote on what you want to see from us in the future. Um, another great way is to become a patron. Um, our Patreon, uh, we have a lot of cool rewards, like we already mentioned. The new logo, we're gonna be we're gonna be sending out new gear. So if you want to get in on that new gear, definitely sign up soon um, because it'll all be going out um, in a wave. Not to say that it won't go out later, but just if you want to get in on that initial wave, uh, make sure to sign up soon. And that's our ten dollar level where you'll be able to get all of that and uh, other stuff too. Def- check it out: patreoncom film. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay, with that. Uh, let's hear it. What is your, what is your vegetable? What is your plant? What is the thing that you're going to, you're going to survive off of? Uh, so mine is potatoes. <laughs> is I, it fucking, potatoes? I fucking love potatoes, dude. Like I, really? I adore potatoes. They're like, that's my favorite vegetable. 
uh, fry them, boil them, stick them in a stew. <laughs> I love nice. potatoes, man. If I had to, honestly, like, I can't think of another one that is better than that. I mean, like, I know I'd be sick of it and 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 hate it, you know, after a few days probably. <laughs> but that would be true for anything. Um, right. And if it has to be like, you know, it can't. It has to be like a vegetable, not like a complete meal. Obviously, then yeah, man, potatoes. That's mine. How about you? I mean, it's such a good answer because I'm I'm also like weighing what I think would get me full, what I think would be like provide enough nourishment. And like, I think potatoes are definitely a good one, but I, for some reason I want to jump to something like exotic. Like I want like to just eat a bunch of kale or something. Like, could I survive on just kale? I don't know, man. I don't, I definitely don't want to eat a bunch of kale. I can tell you that. You don't? No way, I love man. Kale. I hate kale. I love kale. Maybe like, maybe like some tomatoes, but I don't know if tomatoes would last me. Does bread count? Can I just say bread? Broccoli, yeah. Can I just <laughs> grow bread? Just like every time you every time you need to eat, you just have to take your yeast and, and make yeah. some bread. I would eat it. I, I could destroy some bread for a few years for sure. Yeah. With no <laughs> butter, with nothing though. Just all just grain. I'll just, you know, pasta. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll make some whiskey out of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> some mash. Uh, yeah. Let's just say we wouldn't be uh, very good at surviving uh, like old Mark Watney is. But yeah, man, that was fun. I'm looking forward to next week, and uh, we hope you join us for that as well. Uh, Until next time. Thanks for listening.